Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus 23. We'll be looking at Exodus 23, verses 20 to 33. A few weeks ago, my family uh, took a road trip to Kansas to visit Darcy's parents. And we've made that trip several times since we've been married and uh, getting quite familiar with it, even though there's different routes that you can take. But one thing that was noticeably different for me this time was how many times we had to update our girls about our journey and when our next destination was. Um, I think it's because they're getting older. It used to be you'd strap them in a seat and keep the snacks and entertainment flowing, and they didn't really seem to care if we were in Texas or Oklahoma or close to getting there. And I used to think that maybe I was the only one who cared about things like this, like knowing the stops, the schedule. I like to check things off my list. How many times have we gotten gas and eaten, and are we making good time? So I thought maybe that was just my thing. But this experience made me wonder if knowing where we're going and how we're going to get there is really something that's actually more important for all of us to know as humans. And our passage today is really the Lord's road trip chat to the people of Israel. He has miraculously freed them from Egypt and led them to himself at Mount Sinai. And there he is making a covenant with them. He's revealed who he is and what he expects them to do as he's given them the ten words, the ten commandments, and then now the book of the covenant. And this is actually the ending section of the book of the covenant. And in it, he's explaining where they are going and how they're going to get there. And while our journey is a little bit different than theirs, there are some different stops along the way, I think we'll all be encouraged as we're reminded of where we're going and how we're going to get there as the people of God. So let me read our passage, Exodus 23, verses 20 to 33, and then I'll pray. This is God's word. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against you whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies Turn their backs on you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you, 
until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask for his help as we consider it this morning. Our Father in heaven, we confess our weakness and inadequacy at understanding and applying and believing your word. We pray that by your spirit, you would illumine our hearts, that we would better see who you are, who you've made us as your people, and where you long for us to be, where you have promised that we will one day be. So we pray that you would encourage our hearts this morning, strengthen our faith, meet us where we are in our belief, in our unbelief, in our joy, and in our sorrow, in our pain, and also in our strength. We pray that you would turn our hearts afresh towards you through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to consider this passage uh, this morning in two main points. And the first one's a bit longer than the second, but um, the promised place will be the first thing that we look at. And then secondly, the promised process. And so the first thing that we consider in this section is that the Lord promised his people a place. The Lord promised them a place. We see this right away in verse 20. It tells us that the Lord's angel would guard them and bring them, notice, to the place that he had prepared for his people. And we see right away that the plan was not for God just to bring his people out of Egypt and have them figure things out on their own from there. But the storyline of Scripture shows us that God's plan for his people has always been that they will dwell in a place. One professor at the seminary likes to say that they will be a turfed people. And I like that because it makes me think of surf and turf. And so a turfed people. From the Garden of Eden to Canaan to the new heavens and the new earth, God has a plan for his people to dwell somewhere and to dwell with him somewhere. And so what we see right away is it's that God promises his people a place to dwell, but it's not just a place. He also tells them how they will live while they are there, and that will be serving the Lord. His desire is that they would be serving him. We see this in verse 25, that they are to serve the Lord your God. It was not just that they were freed from the tyranny of serving Pharaoh and that the opposite of serving Pharaoh would be just independence and liberation, but instead they were freed from Pharaoh and service to him to serve the living and true God. God's design for his people has been that they would serve him and that they would serve him alone. And serving him would bring great blessing. Look at the results that are spelled out in our passage in verses 25 to 26. It says, You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land, and I will fulfill the number of your days. You see, what God wants his people to understand 
is that serving him is not like serving Pharaoh or serving other gods. Those other gods would selfishly use humans to take from them from their own, for their own advancement. But serving God was different. Serving God brought a life of blessedness. It brought wealth, having bread and water, all of the resources that his people would need to live and not to worry from day to day. It would bring them health. It would take sickness away from them. Earlier, the Lord had said that if you follow me, I am the Lord, your healer. And they would enjoy life. They would have many children. And it says no miscarriages or barrenness or infertility. And it says that the Lord will fulfill the number of your days. This means that not only would they have many children, but that they would live rich and full lives. And so the Lord wanted his people to see that serving him brought life, full life, the blessed life that they were made to enjoy. But God set up this system and this old covenant to teach them something. And we see that in the warnings that are held out in this passage. You see, the nations around them were looking to many other gods to bring them health and wealth and fertility. And that's why God was actually using the Israelites to drive these people out of the land. They were being judged for their idolatry, as the Lord had spelled out back in the book of Genesis. But God wanted his people, as they came into the land, to understand that he is the one who would truly bring them the blessed life. And that's why our passage has all these prohibitions against serving other gods. Did did you hear them as I read them? Don't bow down. Don't serve them. Get rid of all of the places where they used to worship them. Fight against the temptation to add the service of these other gods to your mix. Why? Because in verse 33 it says, if you serve them, they will be a snare or a trap to you. You see, these idols can't really bring what they promise to bring, but life with God would truly bring the blessed life. And this old covenant structure, this promised land to which they were going, was to give them a taste of that reality, even while still living in a fallen world. They would get a taste of what it would be to be with God in paradise. Well, how are we to understand these promises? Some come to passages like this and say that if we just serve God enough, if we just have enough faith, then we will have wealth and health and prosperity. Many of us know that this is not the case. Maybe because in our own experience it hasn't worked out that way, Or maybe because we have an inkling that that's actually bad theology, but perhaps we're not sure why that's not the case. What do we do with passages that seem to hold these things out? For many of us who have felt the profound loss and sadness of miscarriage or infertility, passages like this are especially hard. Even though we may know that that's not the theology that we hold to of blessings and prosperity, passages like this can plague us with haunting questions. Was it something that I did? 
that led to my child's death or that kept me from having children? Did I just not serve God enough or have enough faith for God to bless me in the ways that I desired? We see it's crucial for many reasons to understand how we come to texts like this. And what's really important for us to understand is that this passage is part of a different covenant than we find ourselves under as New Testament believers. And I want to explain why that's so crucial. While there are many things that are similar to our particular situation, there are also major differences. In particular, with what we see spelled out here with the blessings and the curses that are explained. You see, in the Old Covenant, which is what we're reading about here, that God's about to ratify with his people, the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant, there were elements together of both grace and works. And it's important for us to understand how those things fit together. All throughout the scriptures, redemption is always all of grace, right? And we see that for the people of Israel. They were brought out of Egypt. They were chosen by God, not because they had done anything to earn it, but because God had freely and graciously chosen out Abraham from among the people and given to him a promise of grace that would apply to his descendants. And all throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, what we see is this, that redemption and salvation come solely by grace in faith of a coming Messiah who would save. And so in the Old Covenant, we still see that gracious salvation, that gracious redemption that's happening all throughout. But what Galatians tells us is that along with that promise, God also added on this layer of the Old Covenant. And in the Old Covenant, it was a structure given to teach them about salvation. You see, in the Old Covenant, their enjoyment of the land, their participations in the blessings of the land or tenure in the land, it was conditioned by national obedience. We hear this all throughout the Old Testament, and we see it in our passage. Serve the Lord faithfully. Love God and neighbor, and you will stay in the land and you will be blessed. You will experience paradise on earth in many ways. But if you disobey, what happens? The curses come upon you. The blessing is taken away, and you are driven out from the land. And so we see this works principle that's embedded in the old covenant structure. And even as we consider it, I think something that's important for us to know is even in that old covenant system, it wasn't necessarily one-to-one. You could still be living righteously and not have blessing because of the sin of the nation. And this in particular, as we think about barrenness and infertility, you could be a righteous woman even in the old covenant and still find yourself barren because of what God was doing on a national scale to teach his people about their need for a savior. And so that's what's going on in the Old Covenant with some of the blessings and the curses. But as the Bible continues, what we learn is that this system, this structure was temporary and that a better covenant was coming. The author to the Hebrews tells us that the law was but a shadow of the good things that were to come. 
And Jesus burst onto the scene announcing that the kingdom of God was at hand and a better covenant, the new covenant, had arrived through him. And what we find in the rest of Scripture is that through his perfect life and through Jesus' sin-paying death, the curse that we deserved has been completely removed from the people of God. Galatians 3.13 makes this crystal clear. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why? Because God has done what the law was powerless to do. Through Christ's work, we have not only been forgiven, but we have now been counted righteous. And as those who are counted righteous, we're no longer deserving of a curse that has been paid for, but we are now deserving because of the merits of Christ, all of the blessings of the children of Abraham. And so I know that's theological. I know Paul unpacks it in Galatians and we could spend a lot of time talking about it, but what does it mean for us? What does it mean as we think about the promises in Scripture of wealth, the promises of health, the promises of fertility? Well, what it means is we cannot draw a straight line from our hardships or our blessings to our obedience or our disobedience. We can't draw that one-to-one connection line as people who are a part of the new covenant. Instead, if you are in Christ, that line has to be drawn straight through the cross of our Lord Jesus, where every sin has been forgiven, where every punishing curse has been removed, and where every blessing of the promise to Abraham is yours because you are now his child by faith. And yes, the reality is, we still live in a fallen world. We still live under what we call the curse, but that's different than the blessings and curses of the Old Covenant. And this passage reminds and reaffirms for us that sin and suffering and pain and loss is not how it's supposed to be. And Scripture is also clear that for reasons not fully known to us, this side of glory, that God allows his children to go through difficult and painful experiences in life in a fallen world. But he also promises to be with us in the pain and to somehow redeem it. We know that through him, not one tear of ours will ultimately be wasted. And so this passage helps us see that often in this life we're crying out because things aren't how they're supposed to be, especially when it comes to wealth and health and fruitfulness. But this passage also gives us a shadowy glimpse, doesn't it, of what we were made for. The way that God will one day undo all wrong and fulfill all of the aches and the longings of our hearts. The people of Israel were going to get a glimpse of that if they were faithful in the land. 
But what it's holding out for us is that that is just a foretaste of the day when God will truly bring all that is right and undo all that is wrong and where his people will experience the wealth and the health and the blessedness of eternal life with God forever. You see, in Jesus' ministry, part of the the beauty of it is that he was making clear for us that he is where all of the promises held out in the Old Covenant are ultimately found. If you think about his ministry, we see him with his hands breaking bread over and over to feed 5,000 people. He brought a fullness of bread and he himself was the bread of life. Jesus himself was the living water and he gives it to those who turn to him in faith. With a word or with a touch, he took away sicknesses, fevers and blindness and bleeding and leprosy and dropsy and lameness. There was no sickness that Jesus could not heal. And Jesus on his ministry here on this earth brought life. We think of him raising the widow's son from the dead. Why? So that she would not be a mother without a child. And he raised his friend Lazarus, calling him forth out of the tomb. Why? So that his friend could fulfill the number of his days. You see, in Jesus' ministry, he was showing that every promised blessing is received by faith in him. We may not experience all the fullnesses of wealth and health and fertility this side of glory, but one day we will experience the fullness of the blessed life with God because of Christ and that through him God has promised us a place. And so what do we do as we find ourselves waiting for that place, experiencing loss, and looking for blessedness. Well, when we experience this side of glory, the blessings of health and wealth and life, we don't pat ourselves on the back and think that it's somehow because we have earned God's favor in these things, but instead we give thanks to God for his blessings of grace. And we ask that he would make our hearts look forward to and long for the fullness of what those blessings are actually pointing to. And when those blessings elude us and we experience their loss, we look to the cross and we realize that God is not somehow against us or cursing us by withholding them. And we come to him in lament, crying out in our pain, knowing that he too is grieved over the way things are. And we ask him as the God of all comfort to comfort us and to help us to trust that one day he will make all things right. As we look to that promised place where we will experience the fullness of blessed life with him forever. And so what we see in our passage is that the Lord promised his people a place where they would experience the blessings of dwelling with him. 
But he didn't stop there. He also told them how they would get there. And that's the second thing that we notice in our passage, is that the Lord promised a process. The Lord promised not only a place, but he promised a process. Now that they were out of Egypt and they'd seen all the might and the wonder of the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea, now were they just on their own to kind of figure it out and um, find a good place to make their place with God? Well, what we find is that the Lord's powerful action in bringing them out of Egypt and to Sinai would continue on in this next phase of the journey as well. And I want us to briefly notice the three things that he promises them. First, he promised them his personal protection. We see this in verses 20 to 22, where he speaks of the Lord's angel. The Lord's angel was sent to guard them on the way, verse 20 says, and to bring them to the place that the Lord had prepared. This isn't the first time that we encounter the Lord's angel in Scripture or in the book of Exodus. We saw him in the burning bush, and he was also present at the parting of the Red Sea. And just like the incident with the burning bush, there's this really close identification with the angel and with the Lord himself. You notice that obeying him is the same as doing all that the Lord says. And the Lord also says that his name is in him. And so what we find is that the Lord's angel is a visible manifestation of the Lord's presence among his people. It is someone to whom they can look and see that God is present with them. Much like the Lord did with the pillar of cloud and fire, he also did with his angel. Later he will do with the ark These are manifestations of God's presence among his people. And as we look to the fullness of biblical revelation, what we find out is this, that these are actually shadowy forms of the presence of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit among his people in various ways. Because you see, later in the Bible, we learn that the Son and the Spirit accompanied God's people in the wilderness. And so we see that they are probably related to or foreshadowing uh, these things with the presence of the angel and the pillar of cloud and fire. So through his angel, God will personally guard them and bring them to this prepared place. So God assures them of his presence and protection, but he also promises them his assistance. Secondly, we see he promises them his assistance. He mentions three ways that he will help them. In verse 23, his angel's going to go before them and blot out the inhabitants of the land. In verse 27, he will send his terror before them. Exodus 15 foretells this, that the nations will hear of what God has done and they will be terrified and run as they approach. And then in verse 28, it says the Lord will send hornets before them. This rare word could be hornets. I, I think that's what it is. And if you've been around hornets, uh, I don't think you want them coming after you. Uh, it could also be a pestilence or a plague. We're not totally sure. Whatever it is, it's something that comes from God. And it would be especially terrifying to the enemies of God because when nature starts attacking you, who in their way of thinking controls nature? 
the gods control nature. So if you have a bunch of hornets driving you out of the land, it's a horrific sign that God, the gods of that land or God himself has actually turned against you. And so verse 29 summarizes this promised assistance by saying, the Lord himself will drive them out. He will secure this land for them. But even though it was clearly the Lord's work, the third thing that we see is that they were to participate. He promised a process of participation. It says in verse 31, and you shall drive them out before you. You see, they had work to do as well. They were called to faithfully participate, obeying the instructions that he gave them, knowing that ultimately the Lord was going to drive them out as they followed him. And notice that even with the Lord's divine assistance through his angel and terror and hornets and himself driving people out, do you notice that it won't happen right away, will it? I love that there in verse 30. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possess the land. Little by little. You see, what's happening there is the Lord's explaining they weren't yet ready to experience the fullness of the blessings of being in that land without any enemies. It would be too big for them to cultivate yet uh, themselves. They would have to grow as a people to be able to handle the blessedness of being with God. But God would be faithful in the process. He knew exactly what they needed, and little by little he would drive them out. They needed to just patiently obey him by faith. And so we see this divine protection, this promise of land, this promise of blessing that they would participate in as he drove the people out. And so he wants them to know that it will be a process. It's important to know the process, isn't it? If you've been a Christian for more than a day, then you probably know that the way the Christian life works isn't you get saved and experience glory. Have you ever found yourself disappointed by how long things seem to take in the Christian life? How slowly the progress seems to be? And when that happens, when that disillusionment sinks in, we can start to think that God has somehow forgotten what he promised or he's failed to bring it about. Why are there still all these enemies around if God's promised that he's going to take care of these things? Or we can start to look inwardly and blame ourselves, right? We can think that we have failed. If I just had more faith, if I just had more obedience, if I just did more service, then there would be less struggle and less trouble in my life. But how much of this disappointment is addressed when we find ourselves reoriented by the process that God promises, by this little-by-little perspective? When we find ourselves dealing with hard circumstances and fighting the enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil, Part of what God wants us to know is, yes, one day these things will all be no more. But until then, it's little by little. 
Sunday by Sunday, prayer by prayer, one step of obedient trust followed by another little step of obedient trust. And in that process, what is happening? God is shaping us into people who are ready to more fully experience and enjoy the blessings of life with him. He's making us more like Jesus, and he's fitting us for the glory that awaits. Tim Keller says that God's timetable always seems slow until we see that it wasn't. (laughs) And sometimes in this life, we have those moments where we get to see the good that God has been doing in the waiting. And sometimes we won't know that good until we experience the fullness of the glory that awaits. And so as we come to this section in Exodus, God promises a place for his people. He promises them a process. And it seems like, as we think about it, that knowing where we are going is actually pretty important for people like us, isn't it? The Lord makes sure that they, the people of Israel have this enshrined in their covenant so that every time they repeat it, they will know where they are going and how they will get there. And we could be tempted to think that that's just something for Old Covenant people, but when we heard our scripture reading this morning, I think we realized that we are people who need that as well. That our Lord Jesus, as he's preparing on the eve of his final exodus, his departure to the cross where he's going to usher in all the blessings of the fullness of the promised land through his death and resurrection, what did he tell his disciples about? He wanted to make sure they knew about the place that he was going. And he wanted to be sure that they knew the process. And so as, a, as we close, I think it's fitting just to consider what he said for just a moment. He said, I go to prepare a place for you where you will be with me and see my glory. Jesus, as he's about to die, wanted us to know that we will be with him where he is. Why? Because the Father himself loves us and has sent the Son into the world that we could be with him where he is. And throughout Jesus' closing discourse there and in his high priestly prayer, we see how aware Jesus was of the glory that he was coming from and going to the glory that he had with the Father before the foundation of the world, and that he's asking the Father that his followers would be with him to see. And you see what what Jesus wants there as he's saying goodbye to them and by extension us is he wants you to wake up every day assured that you will be with him in glory. That because of his life and death, and resurrection, you are bound for the promised land that God himself wants to dwell with you and is preparing a place for you to dwell in blessedness with him, to forever serve him and experience the place where sickness and sorrow and pain and death are felt and feared no more. That is the place that Jesus came to bring us to. 
But Jesus also told them about a process, didn't he? I'm so glad that he did because I long for that place, but his words give us hope. It's not, a, it's not instant glory, is it? What does Jesus say? You will have trouble. The world will hate you. You will be persecuted because of me. But what? Little by little, my kingdom will grow from a mustard seed to a tree. The glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And how do we know that we're on the way? How do we know that we're on the path? I am the way, the truth, and the life. He calls us to follow him along the way. And he promised his disciples and he promises us greater help along the way than any Israelite could have imagined. When I read Exodus 23 and I hear the angel and hornets and terror, I think, whoa, that's so much divine help. But what does Jesus say? It's better if I go away because if I do, what happens? I will send you another helper to be with you forever. And the Holy Spirit dwells with you and will be in you. Not only assuring that we have the word of God that we need, but from the inside out, enabling us to keep his word and to become people who are more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Jesus calls us to participate in this process, in this little by little faith. What does he call us to? Abide, remain in what? Works, remain in my love. And as you do, obey my commands, ask in my name, love one another, become one as I and the Father are one. And as we do, what does he do? He gives us his peace and he gives us his joy. And he prepares us for the glory that awaits us. And he promised that he will return at the end of that process to take us to the place that he and the Father have prepared for us. May our Lord Jesus encourage us until that day with the promised place and process that he is working in us. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would encourage us afresh with what awaits us, with what is ours, and with what you have promised to do in us. We thank you that this is not because of our works, but solely because of your grace. And we pray that you would strengthen our faith to follow you, to abide in your love until our Lord Jesus returns. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.